0: Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let me welcome you to
1: Resurrection Oakland. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and if I have not gotten to meet you yet, I hope that you'll stop by the newcomer meet and greet after the service. We'd love to get to greet you and learn your name. Um, I have a friend who's a pastor, and years ago... Uh, he was doing some premural counseling for a very young couple, and uh, they'd met for several sessions. They got to the very last session, which typically is when, you know, you kind of start talking about the ceremony and what, what are the different elements of the service that, you know, we're going to kind of have included in this wedding. And so he started making some suggestions, and she said, you know, Pastor, that's, that's a great idea. You know, uh, let me check with Granddad to see what he thinks. And he said, well, you know, have you thought about, you know, this? And he made a couple of the suggestions, and she said, you know, I really like that, but let me talk with granddad, and I'll get back to you. And he said, you know, listen, this is not granddad's wedding. This is is your wedding. And she said, no, 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 pastor, you you don't understand who my grandfather is. And he said, I don't care who your grandfather is. This is your wedding. You need to tell grandfather, this is your wedding. And she said, no, pastor, my grandfather is Gerald Ford the 38th president of the United States. And my friend said, let's do whatever granddad wants (laughs) them. You see, uh, what's the point? Um, The point is understanding who someone is can actually have radical implications for how you relate to them. In today's passage, we find one of the clearest statements in the whole Bible on who Jesus is. And once you understand it, it will have radical implications for your life. We have been in a series the last couple months actually looking at the life of Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' 12 disciples and not just one of the 12, but he's one of the three closest. And so we, we learn a lot about what the Christian life looks like. What is a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? By looking at Peter's life and today we're looking at this very famous confession Peter looks at Jesus in verse 16 and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's one of the clearest statements in the whole Bible about who Jesus is. Um, You cannot be a Christian unless you understand this confession. Some of you are here exploring Christianity. What does it mean to believe? It, It starts right here with this confession. And once you understand it, It will change everything about your life. It will not leave anything in your life untouched. Now, those are big statements, so let's unpack this a little bit. I want to look at this confession this morning under three headings. This confession gives us three things. It gives us a truth for our minds, which is verses 13 through 20. It gives us a challenge for our wills, which is verses 21 through 23. And then it gives us a promise for our hearts which is verses 24 through 28. So first, a truth for our minds. The first thing I want you to see is that this confession actually comes on the heels of a question. Verse 13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? When Jesus asked them, Who do people say the Son of Man is? He is referencing himself. He's saying, Hey, what are the crowds saying about me? And it's really important to see where Jesus asked this question. The text says that it's in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and it's easy to read right past that, but it's a really important little detail in this passage. Because Caesarea Philippi was 25 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was one of the most religiously pluralistic and diverse places you could find at that time in the world. Scholars say that Caesarea Philippi was littered with all of these temples, all these temples that were scattered around that had been built uh, to to worship all of these different Syrian gods. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was the birthplace of the god Pan, who was in ancient Greek mythology uh, the god of nature. And then towering above all of this, all this religious landscape, was this giant marble temple that had been built to worship the emperor. Caesar, that's where this town actually derives its name from, Caesarea Philippi. One commentator says this, uh, there of all places, this carpenter stands and asks people who they believe him to be. It is as if Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of the world's religions in all their history and all their splendor and demanded to be compared with them. Very religiously diverse place. It's actually a lot like Oakland. Oakland is a very religious diverse place. Which I think is what makes the disciples' response in verse 14 so interesting. Look at this. It says they replied, uh, Jesus says, who did the crowd say I am? And, And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The thing to notice about all of these responses is that they are all very positive responses. John the Baptist. Elijah, the prophets. All of these people were admired and appreciated by the crowds. It's actually not so different from today. If you were to go walk around Lake Merritt and you were to ask people, hey, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? You would actually get a lot of positive responses. You'd probably get a a lot of negative responses about Christians and the church But you get a lot of positive responses about Jesus. People would say things like, "Well, Jesus is a great moral teacher. He was a great prophet. He had a lot of great things to say about. He was a he was an advocate for social justice. He had a lot of helpful things to say about love and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and caring for the poor." This is what the crowds are saying. But as if to say, that is not enough. It's not enough to just admire or appreciate Jesus. Jesus then he turns to the disciples. And he says, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? This is really interesting. Because we think a lot about our questions for God. And we have lots of them. And we need to actually deal with those. And we try to be a church that's dealing with those questions. But do you know that God has questions for you? Jesus is asked 183 questions in the gospels you know how many questions Jesus asked in the gospels 307 and this is probably the most important one Jesus is asking it not just of the disciples he's asking it of every single person in this room who do you say I am forget about what the culture says forget about what your family says who do you say he is and the thing about that question is that we, we actually kind of tend to have a lot of different answers. Have you ever noticed how many different versions of Jesus there are today? Let me give you some of them. There's Republican Jesus. Do you know who Republican Jesus is? Republican Jesus. Uh, Republican Jesus is against taxes, and he's for family values and gun rights. There's progressive Jesus. You know, that Jesus is open-minded and he loves all the same people you do except for the people who are not as open-minded as you are. (laughs) There's touchdown Jesus. This is my favorite one. Touchdown Jesus helps Christian athletes run faster (laughs) and score more touchdowns than non-Christian athletes. Touchdown Jesus determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. Uh, here's another one. There's gentle Jesus. That's, that's actually the Jesus we have up here right in the middle. Yes, gentle Jesus who loves all the animals and is meek and mild and never gets upset or angry at anyone. There's genie in a bottle Jesus. That's the Jesus who says, you know, follow my rules and I'll give you everything you want in life. Nothing bad will happen to you. Um, here's one. There's Bay Area Jesus. Bay Area Jesus says, you don't really need to be connected to a church. You can, you can go one, maybe two times a month, but you don't really need to do this church membership thing. You don't really need to be accountable to people. You don't really need to serve you guys aren't laughing at that one. This one's striking close to home. I can tell. Okay. Anybody feel the awkwardness? Okay. We have created all these projections of Jesus, and here's the problem. None of them are the real thing. You know what the real thing is? Messiah Jesus. Peter says, "You are the Messiah." What does that mean when Peter calls Jesus the Messiah? Well, if you look in other translations, sometimes it'll instead of saying you are the Messiah, it'll say you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he is not calling Jesus by his last name. Some of us, we think Jesus Christ, Mr. Christ, you know, (laughs) Christ is not Jesus's last name. Peter does not say you are Mr. Christ. He says you are the Christ. And, friends, that is a title. It is a reference to the promised Redeemer that God would send to save the world. And you see, the truth of this confession is that Jesus is not just a good teacher, He is not just another figure in the religious pantheon, He is the Lord and Savior of the world. That is the truth of this confession if you've never wrestled with that truth I'm so glad you're here today Today today's a great day to start wrestling with that truth because when it comes to the question of who is Jesus if you really think about it you really you've got about three options and 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 good moral teacher is not one of them See, if that's all Jesus was, if Jesus was just a teacher of love and peace, then why did they execute him? You know, Mr. Rogers had a lot to say about love and peace. I don't remember anybody wanting to execute Mr. Rogers. Jesus was like the first century version of Mr. Rogers. Nobody, nobody wanted to kill Mr. Rogers. A lot of people wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Well, because you've got about three options to this question of who Jesus is. He is either a lunatic who, who thought he was God, but he wasn't, and therefore you should not follow him. Or he is a liar who knew he was not God, but intentionally deceived people to try and make them think that he was. Or number three, he is Lord. He is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the savior of the world. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. It doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, what matters is how you live, That you're a good person. Jesus says, it doesn't matter how you live, what matters is what you believe about him. Who do you say he is? Have Have you wrestled with this truth? Have you embraced him as Lord and Savior? Or have you done the only other thing you can logically do if he's not that, which is to reject him entirely? See, this confession is a truth for our minds, and that brings us to the second point, is that it's a challenge for our wills. To say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a ch- it's not just something to believe intellectually. It is something that challenges our lives. You know, verse 20 is one of the verses in the Bible that kind of confuses people. Because Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter makes this great confession... And then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. And you would think Jesus would be like high-fiving Peter and the other disciples, and he's like, ding, 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 you know, you got it right, tell everyone. And Jesus is like, tell no one. Why is Jesus doing this? The reason he says this is because Peter gets it right, but he also gets it wrong. Peter believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he has no understanding of what kind of Messiah he is. Peter thinks that Jesus has come to crush the Romans, but Jesus has actually come to crush a much greater enemy, which is sin and death and evil. Peter thinks that Jesus is going to win through strength, but Jesus is actually going to win through suffering and through death. And through a cross. And that is why in the very next verse, it says that Jesus began to explain to them that he must, and that word must is very key here. Hang on to that for a minute. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of religious leaders. Peter hears this, and what does Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside. And the text says he rebukes Jesus this is not a good starting point okay he rebukes Jesus and he says never Lord this shall never happen to you Peter's saying wait a minute you're the Messiah you are the Christ you are God you don't have to do anything you can do whatever you want and Jesus looks at Peter and then what does he say he says get behind me Satan Of the top ten things you would never want Jesus to call you, where does this fall on the list? I'm going to put it at number one, okay? This is strong language, and you're like, you know, how about something just a little more gentle? How about, like, hey, knucklehead, you know, or hey, fool, you know, I don't know. Like, Jesus, why Satan? Well, think back to the very first time that Satan shows up. It's in the Garden of Eden. God says to Adam and Eve, he says, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. And what does Satan do? He shows up, he pulls them aside, and he says, never. This this, this should never happen to you. You are free. God is telling you, you can't eat from this tree. And Satan says, you are free to eat whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. You are free to live however you want. And you see, Peter is saying the same thing to Jesus that Satan said to Adam and Eve. He's saying, you can live however you want. You don't you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, I must go to the cross. Do you remember the night before his death when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he's, he's thinking about the cross. And he says to God the Father, he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, may this cup be taken from me. And then he says this, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus Christ, think about this, Jesus Christ did not see himself free to live however he wanted. He saw himself as someone who was under the authority of the Father. Oh my goodness. If Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, God incarnate, the the one who was there when God spoke creation into being simply by a word. Jesus Christ, the one who will judge all of evil in the end, if Jesus Christ saw his life like that, how could you and I possibly not see our lives like that? You see, here is the challenge. This is the challenge of the confession, is that if Jesus really is God, if he really is the Christ, the Messiah, then we are not free to live however we want to live. To believe in him is to surrender control of your life like him. That's what Jesus did. He surrendered his life to the Father. It is to surrender control of your life like him and not just like him, but to him. To come to him as God is to say, I renounce my right to call my own shots. I no longer sit on the throne of my own life. Jesus, you are in the driver's seat. I no longer longer stake my claim that I I can live however I want to live. And that is not a popular message. I will tell you that that is is a message that is, is radically contrary to what our culture says. What culture says is, you, know, you should be free to live however you want to live. Do you remember the movie Frozen? <laughs> Let me tell you, I, I'm going to go to my grave singing the theme song to that movie. Like that, that movie has embedded itself somewhere deep into my soul because for two years, my two little girls, every night when I put them to bed, they would ask me to sing them Let It Go. <laughs> yep, and being a good pastor... I would sing "Let It Go" and then I would sing "Jesus Loves Me." We'd always get a little Jesus in there before we fell asleep. And you know that 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 song—let me tell you—that song encapsulates the modern view of freedom. You know, the first verse of that song. Let me let me read it to you um, instead of singing it to you. Uh, <laughs> you were hoping for that. Sorry to disappoint. Uh, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. In other words, keep your desires restrained. Keep them hidden. Keep them to yourself. It's the exact opposite of what the modern view of freedom says. And do you remember how she looked when she was singing that first verse? It was was pretty scary. Like, it was not a happy moment. She's like trudging up the mountain, she's on this like precipice, it's in the middle of the night, like there's this blizzard around her and she's got this like dark cloak on. She's singing this song, but then she gets to the second verse. Let me sing it for you. No, I'm not gonna sing it for you. (laughs) You keep hoping, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. can't hold us hard can't hold it back anymore what is that the modern view of freedom no right no wrong no rules for me i'm free i'm free to live however i want i'm free to do whatever i want do you remember how they depicted her in the second verse <laughs> she you know first verse dark cloak you know it's night blizzard all around second verse All of a sudden she's in this shiny blue gown and she is shooting icicles out of her hand and she's like creating this amazing ice palace and the sun is like rising outside. This is the modern view of freedom. This is what we celebrate. People should be able to free, should be free to live however they want to live. And guess what? It is not just out there. It is not just culture that says that. Friends, there is something deep within your heart and my heart that says that. You didn't know this, but there is an Elsa inside of you. (laughs) And there is a Peter inside of you. We confess that Jesus is God, and yet we still hold parts of our lives back from him. We say, God, you can have this, but you can't have that. God, I'll surrender here, but I won't surrender there the question is not are you holding back parts of your life the question is what parts of your life are you holding back from God what parts would you think about that this morning God says I want you to give 10% of everything you have and we say how about one how about two how about none God says if you're a Christian you should only marry a Christian and you say but but I found this other person and they make me so happy God says, you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. And we say, well, but who's getting really hurt anyways? What's the big deal? God says, forgive people who've wronged you. And we say, but you don't know how much they've hurt me. God says, I want you to rest one day out of seven. And we say, but I've, I've got so much to do. Friends, if God had time to rest on the seventh day and he's running the universe, you can rest. You see, but we're all doing this. Where, where are you refusing to give God control in your life? Where are you unwilling to surrender? Where are you saying to God, you don't, you don't get to tell me how to live? And those, let me tell you, those are hard questions to ask yourself. For honest, we, we struggle, me included, we struggle to give up parts of our lives. Do you know why? Because we do not believe that surrendering everything to Jesus will make us most happy. We're afraid we might miss out. We're afraid that the cost might outweigh the benefits. We're afraid that it might not actually lead to a life of joy and abundance. Surrender everything, follow him in everything I have a good friend who was telling me this week about his young child who uh, recently, his, his, his young child was refusing to do what he was asking him to do. And he finally looked at his little boy and he said, do you know what it means to obey? And he said, yes, it means to be sad. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we, we might not say that out loud. But there is something deep in here that believes that. And it is why there are parts of our lives where we refuse to bend the knee to God. You see, and if, if we are ever going to actually surrender our lives like that, then we don't just need a truth for our minds. And we don't just need a challenge for our wills, but we actually need a promise for our hearts. And that is the good news of this passage. It's what Jesus gives to us in verses 24 through 28. Uh, you know, for a brief moment here, it almost sounds like Jesus is kind of affirming our suspicions. Because look at verse 24, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. How fulfilling does that sound? You know, we do not associate self-denial with a life of joy and abundance. We associate a life of joy and abundance with self-fulfillment, self-discovery, self-actualization. But Jesus is saying, if you want to have a full life, it actually starts with self-denial. Look at the rest of these verses. But then Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In these verses, Jesus is giving us two promises that we need in order to follow him like this, in order to surrender everything. And the first promise is this. First promise is that surrendering everything to him means you will not miss out in this life. Jesus says, whoever wants to find their life, whoever loses their life for me, will find it. The way to find your life, says Jesus, is to lose your life by surrendering your life to God. You know why? Here's why. You think you are concerned with your joy? God is infinitely more concerned with your joy. You think you know the way to an abundant life? God knows infinitely more than we do the way to abundant life. Jesus said it this way, John 10, 10. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. This is Jesus' way of saying, you know, listen... On the surface, I know it looks like I'm asking you to give up some things, but here's what I'm promising you. I'm promising you an abundant life, a full life, a life where you miss out on nothing in this life. But then here's the second promise. The second promise is that surrendering everything to him means you will not miss out in the life to come. So important. Jesus starts talking about rewards In verse 27, did you catch this? He says, I'm gonna return with all my father's angels and I'm gonna reward people for what they've done. And sometimes Christians, we get very nervous about reward language because that sounds conditional, right? Is Jesus saying, Hey, if you do for God, God will do for you? You know, if you if you it, it sounds so conditional. Listen, Christianity is not based on rewards. Christianity is based on grace. It says that God's love for you comes to you not because of anything that you have done, but because of his sheer grace in your life. It is not based on it's based on grace, it's not based on rewards, but there is a dynamic of reward in the Christian life. Jesus is saying, listen, if you are ever going to surrender everything to him, You have got to have some future reward in sight that is greater than any loss or cost you may occur in this world in terms of following him. What is the reward? It's verse 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is Jesus talking about? He is talking about his resurrection. He's he's talking to the disciples who will meet the resurrected Christ when he walks out of the grave. And you know what 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says about Jesus' resurrection? It calls his resurrection the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the New Testament's way of saying that Jesus' resurrection is like like a preview It's like a trailer of what is to come for us. That just as Christ was raised, so shall we be raised. Well, raised to what? Raised to what Alan Gardner wrote about in 1851. Alan Gardner was a missionary. Well, he lived in England. And in 1851, he left England to become a missionary in South America. Do you know what that costs you? (laughs) To leave England in 1851 and go be a missionary in South America? It costs you everything. You leave everything. Family, security, comfort, money. And guess what? He made it about halfway, and then they were shipwrecked. He survived. He made it to a, a small island with a couple provisions. He didn't li- live very long. He died eventually of hunger and thirst. But when they found his body, they found his journal on him. And on the last page of his journal was Psalm 3410. Psalm 3410 says this, Those who seek the Lord shall lack no good thing. Friends, the resurrection is the promise that those who seek God shall lack no good thing. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. In the world to come. Joni Erickson Tata. she's kind of a famous Christian writer, I think she's in her 70s now, when she was 17 years old, she was injured in a freak accident. She was diving into a swimming pool as a 17-year-old kid, and she broke her neck. She's been a quadriplegic ever since. After this accident, she started going to church, and every week she was kind of wrestling with you know, the circumstances of her life and the suffering that had come into her life. And she said for the longest time, church was actually a really painful place to go because there would always be this one point in the service where the priest would invite everybody to get on their knees and to kneel down. And it was just this constant reminder for her that she couldn't, and she never would. And she said every week going to church, she would cry until one week Her tears were not tears of sadness, but they were tears of hope and joy because of the resurrection. This is what she writes. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump and dance. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees, I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. And then she said this, Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone like me? Friends, the resurrection is a guarantee that we will not just have new bodies, but that all things will be made new. That those who trust in God shall lack no good thing and that we will be raised like Christ was raised into the world that we long for. Every single one of us in this room. The world we long for and the world we were built for. A world where injustice is no more. A world where evil is no more, a world where there are no more tent encampments, a world where there is no more poverty, a world where there is no more cancer or divorce or betrayal, no more broken homes, no more broken families, no more depression, a world where loneliness is no more, a world where there are no more funerals, A world where we will not be saying goodbye to people that we love. A world where death is no more. A world where tears are no more. A world where all things are made new. And here is what the Christian hope holds out to me and you. The resurrection says that we will be raised, and we will sing, and we will eat, and we will dance, and we will laugh. And our hearts will be filled with everything that we long for forever and ever. Here's what the resurrection means. I got good news for you today, if you're a Christian. The resurrection means you will miss out on nothing. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. And that is the promise that this table reminds us of week after week. The night that Jesus gave this meal to his disciples, he said, I will not eat or drink of this again until I eat and drink of it with you in the kingdom of God when all things are made new. Friends, and that is the promise that you and I need if we are ever going to actually follow Jesus the way that he calls us to follow him, which is to surrender every part of us. See, where are you going to get the strength to do that? Where are you going to get the strength to pick up your cross And to deny yourself and to say, God, I give you everything. You can have all of me. It doesn't just come by trying harder. It comes by tasting and seeing of Jesus denying himself for us. And the ultimate display of that was the cross. His body broken for you. His blood poured out for you. Jesus did not just surrender part of his life for you. He surrendered all of his life for you. And to the degree you see him surrendering everything for you, guess what? Your life will start to look different. My life will start to look different. On the night in which he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, some of us in this room, we have yet to cross the line into faith in Jesus. And we have been holding on to all of our lives and it's not working. And so maybe today is the day where we say to you, God, you can have not just part of me, but you can have all of me. And others of us, God, we have been walking with you for years, even decades. And there are things that we are still clinging to And we think they will set us free, but they are actually enslaving us only more. So would you help us as we come to this table to see once again the ways that you surrendered surrendered everything for us so that we might respond by holding our lives out freely to you and so that we might truly be free. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.